Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features David Blunkett and this is an experience, a very, very special experience in the company of a remarkable man. And I'm often um, obviously just completely engrossed in my guests, but there's something about David Blunkett that is on another level. And this is a brilliant chat about contemporary politics with um, a fantastic uh politician and political brain it's also as you would imagine some great stories from uh the the glory days um but also and i've interviewed david before but i, I felt too awkward to ask him but but this time i felt less awkward because i did ask him just about the reality of being blind and particularly about football and being blind at football matches and i know there are all sorts of services now for people but what difference do they really make and what is the experience of being blind in 2023 and has it changed that much in his life um, and um, we get a couple of questions at the end, one of which is very emotional. But um, this is, uh, and it's just so good. Uh, you know, a former Home Secretary and his take on what's happening with Suella Braverman, all those things. And he has a, a clarity of communication. It's such a warmth to him, but he's also blessed with just such blunt political attack lines. And just, he makes whatever his position is sound like absolute straightforward common sense. And it, and it, there's just that refreshing directness that is still very warm, still very friendly, um, but nevertheless, you know, it's one of those voices that you are compelled to listen to, uh, and he's just great company anyway. Um, so before uh, I play you that, just to let you know, my future guest at the political party, the next live show is on Monday the fifth of June, and my guest is Philip Hammond. Now. You will know from listening to this show, from listening to various other political shows, it's very rare to get an interview with Philip Hammond. And of course, he was Chancellor under Theresa May, served in the cabinet of David Cameron as well. And I think it's fair to say, not a fan of Boris Johnson. Uh, and it'll be fascinating to see what he thinks about the Johnson years, the trust weeks, and what Rishi Sunak has done since. Um, because um, he is someone who tells it like it is. And that will be absolutely fascinating. And again, a fortnight after that, on Monday the 19th of June, talk of rare interviews. Margaret Beckett, uh, who barely ever does an interview like this, um, is coming on the political party live for the first time. And then two weeks after that, on Monday the 3rd of July, my guest is Joe Lysett. I'll hopefully be able to announce the guest for the 17th of July soon. I'm doing some Edinburgh shows, by the way, at the festival. I'm going to be interviewing Kate Forbes, among others. I'll announce those dates soon. And then when we come back... Uh, my guest on the 2nd of October, and I do like to mix it up a bit. Obviously, it's primarily about politicians, but I think people are interested in politics, people like Joe Lysett, people like Gary Neville, and political broadcasters, people like Emily Maitlis and John so Sopel. So on the 2nd of October, my guest is Jason Williamson. Uh, Jason is the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, who are a phenomenal punk band, but they're so much more than that. They're very satirical, they're very funny, and he is highly politically interested. And uh, it, that will be a, a unique experience because they are one of the most exciting and vital bands around at the moment. And um, to, to be able to sit down opposite him and, and ask him about politics will be a, a, a real treat. So anyway, on to um, today's show, which, of course, as all live shows, begins with a bit of stand-up about the fortnight in politics. Royal events on TV are incredible in this country because they go on for ages and Hugh Edwards and the others just have to relentlessly fill time. And one of the things they do, one of the techniques that he's got is what they'll do is they'll just open up an area that allows them to just list things. Of course, uh, 
Westminster Abbey today, scene of many foreign dignitaries, uh, leaders of France, Germany, Portugal, Spain, of course, <laughs> and the African nations, uh, Congo, the uh, South Africa, of course. And then they do, like, they'll do it for like, various different subheadings. And, of course, today, a big day for our armed forces, the Army, the Navy, the Royal Air Force, but also the armed forces of other countries, France's Army, Navy and Air Force, Germany's... You know, it's such a clever way to build time. And obviously, there's part of me, as someone uh, of the left, that watches... Uh, you know, I, I'm never going to win the argument on the monarchy. We're always going to have the royal family, I think. Um, and I kind of make my peace with it. But there's a part of me that thinks it's very odd on the BBC to just see blanket positive coverage for something that is quite ideological, that, that definitely is a way of doing government, and it's completely uncritical. And you think, we couldn't really have it the other way round. You couldn't have sarcastic coronation coverage... <laughs> On Main Street, you couldn't have, uh, you had, uh, now the king and queen about to be uh, coronated with those beautiful crowns, of course, and look at those beautiful gems, diamonds and rubies, of course, the spoils of war and the slave trade will now be placed <laughs> onto the king's head before the special anointing oil, which according to legend creates a, a direct link with God, if you believe that sort of shit, I don't, but... Uh, <laughs> I kind of accept that it has to be uh, overwhelming. It has to be done in that particular way. I've sort of accepted my place. In it. I mean, the, the one thing I do think, the thing that makes me bristle a little bit is I think we give politicians in this country correctly a lot of scrutiny and a lot of hard time. Look at the way the expenses coverage was handled. Compared to the way that the royals spend their money in their big events, are covered, we do cover them in a different way. I mean, if politics was covered by the BBC in the way the monarchy are... It would be insane. Rishi Sunak there, just leaving uh, number 10 for Prime Minister's questions with a lovely smile on his face. <laughs> and when he smiles, you do get a sense, don't you, Julie, that the whole country is smiling with him. <laughs> so it's, uh, it is uh, bizarre watching it. I mean, even, of course, Labour politicians now, particularly in an era where Labour's trying to win elections, want to hug the monarchy close. And uh, Prime Minister's questions uh, a few days before the coronation, Keir Starmer's final question, he goes... Will the Prime Minister wish our new king a long and happy reign? What, what answer are you expecting? No. I mean, it's not that I don't... Of course, it would be mad. If Labour's trying to win a general election to not be kind of broadly positive about the coronation, but it would also be... I mean, there's part of you that thinks you are a left-wing party. It would be nice if there was just a little bit. Like, of course we welcome the new king and indeed queen to their respective thrones, Mr Speaker. But should we not have a debate in this country about our model of government, about the future of monarchy, particularly, as many honourable members have pointed out, most of them are racist and at least one of them is a nonce. <laughs> He also had this sort of mad... You can only presume... And I'm going to give it to you word for word now. You can only presume that something got lost here because he really bristled the other day, it. He said, uh, quick history lesson. 13 years ago, we inherited the biggest deficit in the G7. There was absolutely no money left. The coffers were completely empty. And what's more, Mr Speaker, after that, they wanted a longer lockdown. That was a very quick history lesson. You, you missed out 12 of the last 13 years. After the great financial crash, straight to lockdown. You'd be a terrible history teacher. And that was the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. And next, Tony Blair illegally invaded Iraq. 
There's a middle bit you're missing here, Rishi. Millions and millions of years. But also, you just think, there's something about him. He obviously hasn't figured out yet how to properly uh, attack uh, Starmer. And Starmer himself, you can feel him sort of growing into the competition a bit. And uh, he gave a speech to Progressive Britain the other week, formerly Progress, the Blair Arkwing of the Labour Party. And he loves to use his personal experience. And you get the sense that he does that because Rishi can't. Um, but even on things that Rishi may well be able to. And at one point, Keir Starmer goes, when I was younger, I was a middle-distance runner. <laughs> Any runner will tell you that the hardest yards come at the end. You think, you don't need to be a runner to know that. <laughs> I've never watched the London Marathon and thought, I wonder what's the hardest bit. Yeah, 10 miles. You think the first mile's hardest? Actually, I, I did run the London Marathon in 2010. And um, six hours, six minutes, 33 seconds. And, um, but I, it, that was a big, you know, still a big... I've not done it since, put it that way. But um, it, if, if he's trained in the way that I trained, they're not the lessons I took from running. And if Keir Starmer gave a speech based on the lessons I took from running, it would have been a very different speech. I was a middle distance... I did the London Marathon once. Let me give you some advice. Put tape over your nipples. Because that vest will sand them down over 26.2 miles. They will never recover. Every time you wear a shirt, you'll have some sort of man-boob stigmata. He also used another phrase, and he was, again, at progress. He's at the Blair Art Wing. He goes, uh, it is, if you like, clause four on steroids. Right? And obviously that appeals to people like me and one other guy here. And... Uh, but whenever we describe anything, particularly when politicians do this as something on something, it's always steroids. This is privatisation on steroids. This is Thatcherism on steroids. This is Blairism on steroids. This is Clause 4 on steroids. There's no other substance his policy ever described as. He would never have got up and gone, this is Clause 4 on LSD. You no longer want to nationalise the railways, but you do think the train is a big snake trying to eat you. This is... This is like the Northern Ireland Protocol on MDMA. You've removed the need for border checks, but you can't stop dancing. This is like the Warsaw Pact on Viagra. You've effectively embodied the Eastern Bloc, but you've done it with a massive boner. They'd be the best three I could come up with. But then he said, he said something very strange. He said, without you, there would be no light at the end of the tunnel. And let me tell you, walking towards that light will be difficult, it will be hard and challenging, but the reward is worth it. I sat this watching at home, but I thought, am I dying? <laughs> is this how it ends? Keir Starmer, walk with me towards the light in a heaven where every archangel and cherub is given harp lessons regardless of their background. Um, but uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, has been in Japan. And uh, he's been in Hiroshima for, for the G7 and meeting with Zelensky. And <laughs> get this interview to Beth Rigby, which goes, have you got a message from Vladimir Putin? And he goes, yeah, I have got a message from Vladimir Putin. We're not going to go away. Ooh. I bet he watched that and trembled in his boots. Now, I know this like a medium ground when you're saying... I mean, at the very least, he should have just said, my message to Vladimir Putin is, you have lost this war. End it now before it costs you your career. Come to the table. If you carry on, you will lose. Or something, like something that sort of stirs us a bit, not just like, we're not going anywhere. It's so absolute. I mean, I know that he can't go full tough guy. I've got a message for Vladimir Putin. Swivel, motherfucker. <laughs>
the, the finest hour was, um, he does this big press conference in, in Hiroshima and uh, he outlines everything that's going on at the G7 about Ukraine and Russia. He goes, right, questions. Uh, Chris Mason, BBC. And Chris Mason, he goes, are you aware that Suella Braverman uh, instructed civil servants to try and get her off a uh, speeding charge? And he, he, he literally, a Prime Minister live on television literally does this. He goes, um, got any questions about the summit? <laughs> Wait, what? Not a teacher that's lost control of the... Oh, come on, guys, stop marking it. If I was there, every journalist should have gone, yeah, yeah, I've got... He literally should have just gone, yes, we have, yeah, yeah. Is it about Japan? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, it's about Hiroshima. Good, I'll take that. Um, obviously, we're in Hiroshima today, Prime Minister, and uh, being here, obviously, you feel the weight of that history. And I just wonder about putting Hiroshima into a context of geopolitics, just about people here and how they feel about Suella Braverman instructing civil service. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Well, what a special night we have ahead. A true heavyweight of British politics and of Labour politics. Someone with a remarkable life and career and someone who hit the heights of British politics as Education Secretary, Home Secretary, where he's very prominent, and Work and Pension Secretary. He's now in the House of Lords. He is a huge hero to people across the political spectrum, one of the most gifted minds the Labour Party has ever produced. Please raise the roof for a very special man. David Blunkett! David, I've got your arm. So bring you around. And then the seat's just behind you. Just got it. There you go. And then I'll move the wine closer to you. So the wine's just... Uh, knowing where the wine is is probably the most important bit. That's just off to your right. Just... Uh, there. Oh, yeah, and then the water's just nearby. Oh, uh, I need a mic. Oh, yes, the microphone. <laughs> shit. And uh, Matt forgot the dog. The dog is Barley. Oh, shit, sorry. Oh, uh, uh, pardon. I'm such a terrible person. My wife would say, wash your mouth out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Barley. I guess I was meant to call Barley's name. Oh, my God. That, that could have been a catastrophic start. I've only brought him along in place so, uh, so I... Oh, I can't even say her name. <laughs> Sue Ellen Braverman <laughs> pops up. You know, I've got to, you need protection when she's around. <laughs> and what's, uh, I know um, uh, Prime Ministers don't necessarily like to comment on former Prime Ministers, but uh, as a former Home Secretary, do you, do you feel free to comment about the current one? Well, you'd have to be a braver man than me to comment on Sue Ellen. <laughs> Uh, she's unbelievable, really. She's morphed. Do you, do you remember that Suella was the first to put herself forward uh, when uh, Boris was knifed in the back? Yes. Well, he was knifed in the front as well. But, <laughs> um, she was first out, and she was first out of the, um, of the contest. <laughs> but it's not daunted her at all. She's, she's out there at this thing they had last week. What was it called? The National, National Conservatism. Conservatism. God. Uh, it is something else. It's the guy who runs Hungary. Uh, it's Georgia Maloney, who is Prime Minister of Italy. It's the far-right Republicans. It's a real gang of uh, thieves. Um, the sorts I didn't of people... mean that in literal terms, in case I get sued. Uh, it was just an expression. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the sorts of people, David, that when New Labour was in government, we'd have had a constructive relationship with. I'd never have a constructive relationship with Suella. 
or any relationship. <laughs> but do you... Uh... You, know, the, the, you, you know that uh, line of duty? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it really struck me when the Home Secretary said, you can touch me. <laughs> you can touch me. And I thought, you really wouldn't want to. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Matt. <laughs> what were you asking me? I've forgotten. Well, it was, it was more sort of about policy. Um, <laughs> which, which policy? What about things like the small boats, then? Is that something... I mean, you were seen as a tough Home Secretary. Where would you be on something like the small boats policy? Well, 20 years ago, we had a, a similar problem, but it was under trucks, inside trucks, hanging under Eurostar, all kinds of things were happening. And we did reach an agreement with France. Because I've always said to people, just put yourself in the situation of the French. If people were trying to escape from Kent into France, you know, what would we say? Would we say, no, we're going to stop them? You know, we're, we're going to have blocks on the A2, the M2. You know, we're going to prevent people from getting out of our country. So you've got to actually... I mean, this is serious stuff, rather than joking. But you've really got to persuade the French that it's in their best interest to help stop the traffickers and stop people coming across in small boats because the organised criminals worked out that they could no longer get them across as they did 20 years ago because we put immigration and uh, uh, intelligence and security and customs on French soil, first time since Joan of Arc, and it worked. So we've got people out there preventing people coming through the normal route to Calais and on the Eurostars, if you go to... Paris or Brussels on Eurostar, you'll find that there's British immigration uh, as well as French and Belgian immigration. We, we started that 20 years ago and it worked. But you've got to have an alternative. And my alternative is to persuade the French to license boats, to license crafts of any description. And then they wouldn't be able to buy them, store them, sell them without having a license. Because at the moment, the French can't stop uh, people buying and selling boats because it's not illegal and as a consequence there's a great trade going on and you're not going to stop it by telling people that they're going to be sent to Rwanda because all they're going to do is come here and disappear into the ether so we're going to have tens of thousands of the disappeared and that's not in anybody's interest sorry that's really serious stuff but <laughs> no. it is serious stuff it is and you, you can't deal with it by this, it's a very interesting title, this, isn't it? The Illegal Immigration Bill. And on international legal scales, it is illegal because it actually destroys our commitment to the Convention on Human Rights, the UN Convention back in 51. Uh, and it's a really dangerous piece of legislation. It goes like this, and Suella puts it this way, uh, we are going to make you criminals because you are coming into our country illegally and once we've designated you criminals then we can treat you as criminals and refuse to take your asylum claim because you don't have papers and a passport and therefore you're a criminal and once you're a criminal you don't have British values because you're breaking the law and so you come full circle that people who are trying to escape not all of them, but many of them escape from uh, d death or, or torture uh, and desperate conditions. 
They get here and now they are criminals. And once they're criminals, you treat them differently. So you, you can see what's happened here, that the whole thing has become Kafkaesque. It's a, it's a parody of what you would expect to happen. And what about the politics of it? Because it feels like, you know, it's, it's right-wing populism, talking about stop the boats, but obviously if you live on the South Coast, you do want the boats to be stopped. And as you, you know, for the reasons you described, it's not safe to have people um, travelling across the channel in that way. But is it also a political trap for Labour to be seen as perhaps soft on things like illegal oh, immigration? It's, it's, it's a trap. It's full of elephant traps. It's a trap for the Labour Party and, for that matter, the Lib Dems. It's a, a trap for the House of Lords, should the House of Lords stop the bill uh, or destroy it in such a way that the government can say, we would have done this, we would have solved this problem if it weren't for the House of Lords, the Labour Party, and, of course, lawyers. Um, very strange when lawyers attack lawyers. It's like putting a you know, bunch of ferrets in a sack. Uh, and they're having a go at each other. Uh, and of course, these elephant traps are there for a purpose because they know that they have no account. They, they've tried setting up two camps and there's major upheaval in Lincolnshire against the one at Scampton. And there's one proposed in Essex and the local Tories are opposing that. And so they don't have the accommodation to place these, quotes criminals in secure accommodation. They don't have anywhere other than Rwanda to send people back to. And they know between now and the general election that they're not going to do it. And, and they're certainly not going to put the organised criminals off, which is the only, only justification you can see for what they're actually doing, i.e. the signal goes out, if you get here, we're going to send you somewhere else immediately, so don't come. So that's the kind of signal thing. But if you've got none of the bits in place to make it happen and you can't process the people in any case because we've got 160,000 uh, people who are waiting to be processed in terms of immigration claims if if you get into that situation you know it's not going to happen and you want somebody else to blame for it not working and we're all in the blame game so we've just got to watch it and and how do you feel labor have handled the issue I think Yvette Cooper is extraordinarily good at the dispatch box. I mean, we, we haven't adopted my policy yet, so it's not brilliant. Uh, <laughs> uh, but maybe we will. But I think Yvette has been incredibly effective in the House of Commons, which does matter. It matters for morale on our own benches. It matters in terms of disquiet on the Conservative benches, because a lot of decent Conservative members out there who are really quite also disquieted. And by the way, you asked me about Kent, and it is awful for people in Kent having to put up with what they put up with for quite a long time now. But Dover did go Labour in the local elections. Very interesting. <laughs> and what's your take on the local elections? Obviously, pre-97, those famous local election results in 1995, which were a precursor to the landslide. Does this feel like the precursor to a general election win for Labour? Well, I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a political animal, aren't I? I've been a member of the Labour Party for almost 60 years. I mean, I was really pleased that we did well. We got a, a, about a 9% uh, swing, which is a, a little bit of a misnomer because in some parts of rural England, um, Labour didn't have candidates. So the actual vote swing is quite difficult to, to really quantify. 
But I don't think we're there yet. Let's put it that way. I think we, Keir Starmer and the leadership team have made enormous strides uh, over the last three years. But we're not yet, we're not yet there. So there's 18 months of uh, both building on policy and persuading people that we're not just electable because they don't like the Tories, but we're electable because we're going to do something a hell of a sight better. And we've got to get that together. So I'm hoping this conference in the autumn will do part of that. And then the following year, we'll make people feel enthused. What I'd like is the enthusiasm that young people felt for Jeremy Corbyn without Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people would like. It's, uh, I think it's a, 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 quite a sensible um, aim. Uh, but so, what do Labour need to do well, then? I, ne I nearly choked then. Like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but is it is it that Labour then, in your view, is is effectively sort of failing, or is it that Labour have made huge progress and you think they'll get there? No, I don't. I don't think Labour's failing. I think they come from the, the lowest possible um, baseline. I mean, given that we've got fewer MPs at any time since 1935, it's a massive uphill struggle. Um, you know, if you need 123 seats to win 123 seats, just to have a majority of one, and you've still got the problem of the SNP, I mean, they have helped us enormously, um, <laughs> thank, thank the Lord. But e even with that we might win uh, at best 15, possibly 10 or 11 seats in Scotland, which is disastrous compared with 97. So we were blessed back then, both with the, the, the feeling of, of change and people wanting to get rid of the Tories, but also a, a feeling of energy and enthusiasm and commitment to something different. And we have that right across uh, Britain, whereas this time we're, we're struggling to, to break through in Scotland, and we've still got major problems in those areas that we lost disastrously in 2019. So the, the, the reason I'm saying all this, Matt, is it's not easy. I mean, if it were easy, we'd have cracked it. You know, it was, it's, it, you need a swing now of over 10% to be sure of getting a swing of 7 or 8%, which would get us into government. And what does your gut say? Do you think Labour will get over the line? Do you think it'll be a minority government? Do you think it'll be a coalition? <laughs> no, hang on. <laughs> Would I ever lie? <laughs> no, so I'm not answering your question. <laughs> well, I... About, look, look, if, we're, if, if we really pull it off, we'll have a small majority. I can't see the Tories pulling round to being the largest party. So, I mean, from a realistic point of view, I, I still do some teaching and tutoring at the University of Sheffield. So if, if you were all in a tutor group and you were asking me this question, and with my academic hat on, I would say it's quite hard to see how the Tories can form the next government. And Labour's got to work out how, if we don't make the majority, we ensure that we form a government that can work mm. and, and learn from back in the 1970s and what happened then. 
and mobilise so that it's really difficult for the Lib Dems and even the SNP, if they bother to turn off, to actually vote against what you're putting forward. And, and, and you're a tribal Labour guy. How would you feel about a coalition with the Lib Dems? <laughs> well, <laughs> you see, I, I still remember them being in coalition between 2010 and 2015. <laughs> and, I, and I know the issue of university fees and the lies about that really got people, but it wasn't that that really got me. It was them signing up to austerity. That, that's what really did me with them. Now, I'm always in favour of a sinner being forgiven. I mean, I've, I've sinned over my lifetime and I want a bit of forgiveness <laughs> as well. So I'm quite happy to see them change direction. And Ed Davey has made it very clear that his, his task is to win Tory seats. So that, that's fine. I, I don't think a formal coalition would work. I don't think it would be in our interests or theirs, but I think an, an understanding would. I'd rather have an understanding in the lead-up to the election and a more formal one afterwards than I would PR. But you might want... You know, I don't think the audience might agree with me because there are a lot of people who I respect who are very keen on PR... Uh, but I think it's, it, 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 you don't always wish for things without knowing what the consequences are going to be. And then with, just thinking of some of the people that were in your generation then, is there like a former Home Secretary's WhatsApp group? <laughs> or who are you still in touch with from the good old days? I'm just thinking of a, 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 a Home Secretary's WhatsApp group. <laughs> what, Michael Howard? <laughs> <laughs> Well, OK, Labour, you, Jack Straw, John Reid. Yeah, Theresa May. <laughs> I don't know, like, do you have other... Savage Janet. Uh, <laughs> you know. Who do have you... we gone through? Oh, um, gosh, Pretty Patel. What about that? Oh, can you imagine a WhatsApp group with Pretty? <laughs> Might be a good laugh. It'd be pretty terrible. <laughs> um No, but we did... People did keep in touch with each other a bit. Um, Jack gave me advice when I took over from him, Jack Straw. Uh, and I, 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 I daren't advise Charles Clark. He might have thumped me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, there's a group of people. We went through quite a lot of home secretaries after I left. Uh, Charles, John Reid, um, Jackie Smith, uh, Alan Johnson... So we had quite a big turnover. You know, I, I think Alan Johnson and I probably were the closest politically uh, with each other. Uh, but do you still... Could, uh, uh, the reason I ask is something happened to me yesterday. Oh, uh, don't tell me. <laughs> I bumped into Stephen Byers in the street, but I'd, I'd never met him before. So I said, oh, my God, it's Stephen Byers. And then I said, you've aged very well, because he has. And then I said, oh, I'll do a podcast, I'd love to interview you. And he, he was clearly taken aback. And I said, he said, well, look, some of us still keep in touch. He said, um, you know, I talked to David Blunkett. And I said, I'm interviewing David Blunkett tomorrow night. And then he said, ask him about the first presentation he did as education secretary inside number 10 and a machine that they got you to use. Well, what happened was that... Um, <laughs> it was not dangerous, don't worry about it. Uh, 
it wasn't sort of water cannon or anything like that. <laughs> uh, even I wouldn't do that. Um, we, just before 97, it was pretty clear by then that the chances of the Tories hanging on were zilch. So the department had worked out, because Tony Blair had already said that he was going to keep me from being shadow education employment to the, the job. And they got this Braille transcriber linked to, a, to very early stages of computer. I mean, it's hard to remember now that 26 years ago computers were in, but they weren't vastly used. Uh, and this was linked up to the computer so that people who couldn't read Braille could actually produce it. And I was going across to Downing Street to do the first presentation with Steve Byers, as it happens. Uh, he moved on to be Chief Secretary and Estelle Morris joined the team and we were a great team. And Steve was sat there and I think he was probably smiling because it became obvious to me and must have been obvious to him very quickly that I wasn't reading this Braille. Uh, I was just ad-libbing. And Tony didn't notice, it was absolutely fine. I just did it off the, off the shoulder. I, I, I knew it backwards. And I got back to the department and I said, they said, did it go well? I said, well, it, it was absolutely fine. But I said, the Braille was absolutely hopeless. They said, what was the matter? I said, I couldn't read a single word of it. It was just gobbledygook. And so they rushed off and they came back about half an hour later and they said, Secretary of State, we, we found out what the problem is. I said, what was it? They said, we bought this machine from Sweden. <laughs> and, and it hadn't been switched over. So, yeah, and, and Swedish Braille was you know, quite difficult, let's put it that way. So that was a good start. Just ABBA lyrics. But, but they, really, they really meant well, and it was a nice gesture. So, so I mean, the tech... I don't know. Do you have, like, better tech at your disposal now? What sort of things do you use in 2023? I still, I still have an old-fashioned transcriber linked to a computer, and it is quite old. It's been refurbished a number of times. Uh, and I have... I, I'm absolutely hopeless, personally, at uh, modern technology. I am, seriously. I, I've got an iPhone. I'm just going to show the audience. The podcast might not pick it up. This is a museum piece. This is my... <laughs> Mobile. Is that a Nokia? It's a Nokia. What, a 3310 or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. and you can actually... The great thing about this uh, phone of mine is you can speak to people. It's a, a miraculous <laughs> piece of equipment. Uh, and you can hear answer phone messages. Have you, uh, can, do you remember answer phone messages? <laughs> I, I still have them. Uh, it does basic text. The problem with this piece of equipment is it reads out the text and then it kind of absorbs it, so you can't get it back, uh, which is a, a genuine problem. So I'm, I'm not good on the iPhone. It has a Siri function where you can see, Siri, do this. It never does. <laughs> I mean, I, many of you will have got a smartphone. I've, I've got an Alexis. Oh, yeah. Alexa, sorry. Alexa. No, that's a car, isn't it? <laughs> I haven't got one of those. You'd be pleased to know I don't drive a car. <laughs> Although, although it's on the horizon, I'll be sat there in the driver's seat, you know, the dog sitting next to me with his harness on, and people on the M1 ducking as we go by. Anyway, where was I? Oh, Alexa. I say to the Alexa, because the BBC have this advert now, there's a Scottish guy comes on radio and says, 
you can ask the uh, smartphone to say anything. You say, smartphone, repeat this for me. Well, I say, Alexa, play this. I do not understand what you're saying. I say, Alexa, uh, play whatever the program is that I'm trying to get from Radio 4. Silence. I say, Alexa, and then the power goes. And it goes, Whoa, and then it says, uh, I am not connected to the internet. And whatever I touch, which is technology, it goes wrong. So I still use an old-fashioned Braille machine for making my own personal notes. And with all the things that I manage to do, including the daily allowance from the House of Lords, I pay an assistant who's absolutely fantastic. And without her, I wouldn't be doing most of the things I'm doing. So, so, there, so there are, because it, it's... Because I don't have any disabilities at all, it's very hard for me to know. Are you sure? Are, are you absolutely sure? Well, none that. I mean, people on Twitter tell me we that. We could identify, you know, we could put you through it if you wanted. <laughs> but I just wondered if there were extra gadgets or gizmos now that were not just iPhones, but other things specifically for blind people. There are, there are. And young blind people are yes. able to. Are you one? Yes. Um, so you'll be great on the computer. Uh, you'll be great at um, researching using Google search. I wouldn't say great, but okay. <laughs> okay. And you use screen reader? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm useless on all of these things. <laughs> I have a very modern watch, which my oldest son bought me a year or two ago, which instead of having hands, has um, ball bearings. And the inner ball bearing is where the hands would have been, and the outer ball bearing is for the hour. Now, it's fine during the day, but it's, the ball bearings are so small that at night I get the hour wrong. And it's a bit of a bugger when you get up at five o'clock thinking it's seven. And so I've got an old-fashioned Braille watch with a lid and hands, and I use that at night. So I'm, I'm using really old technology. I actually still use old-fashioned cassettes. Any of you ever seen an old-fashioned cassette? Yeah. I think they're coming back a bit. They are. You, can, you can buy them. And that's because when things have been recorded for me, I can move them easily, just a few words and not just a sentence. I can move them about quickly and effectively. I, I do have a digital machine that I, record, I can record on and send it down the line to London. So in the past, I would have had to have put a cassette in the post and now I can just send the digital recording down, which is a, a real improvement, but I only got that four years ago. I mean, uh, you know, uh, eventually I'll, I'll catch up with something that all of you take for granted, um, like a sewing machine or... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mangle. A mangle. <laughs> Do you know, we had a mangle. When I was little, we had a mangle, and, and most people, you say, how old are you then, Matt? Forty. You won't remember a mangle. <laughs> this mangle is what you put the clothes through when you'd wash them in the tub. We had a tub, and they call them dolly, dolly pegs. And you used to bang the, the, the dolly pegs into the, into the clothes in the water, and then you get them out, and you put them through the ringer, the mangle. And my mum used to say, don't put your fingers too near to these rollers, because you could actually take your fingers off with the rollers. So my job was to stand at the side of the mangle and turn the wheel. 
And, you know, I've got wonderful muscles in my right arm and hardly any in my left. <laughs> it was a great thing. I mean, you know, some of these recollections where you didn't have a washing machine, you didn't have a fridge. We had a, we had a pantry. And uh, it's amazing that the stone kept things cool. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was born in a cardboard box and, you know, <laughs> used to have to drink from a puddle. And all of that. <laughs> That was just a cabinet. <laughs> but was it, was it difficult being a government minister and being blind? Oh, it was an absolute doddle map. There was no problem. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, one, of, uh, one of your guests, one of your audience, um, will recognise this very clearly. The, the biggest challenge is the amount of reading. You know, the, 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 the amount of uh, material, reading material, you've got to get through. And it's, although you can speed up a, a machine, digital or a cassette machine, uh, so it's like Mickey Mouse, you're nowhere near as fast in reading mm. as someone who can print, re uh, and, and you can't skip. So that makes it really difficult. Braille, which I, I do use, is very slow, and I'm not the greatest Braille reader. I, I'm okay, um, but it's, it's difficult. So you have to put the hours in. I mean, it was a quid pro quo. I, I got a fantastic job. I achieved something I always wanted to do. So I put the hours in. But it was at a price. My social life for a long time was crap. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you just had to do it because you never wanted anyone to say that you weren't briefed, that you weren't on top of it, and that you weren't working on equal terms. I probably carried it too far. If I were doing it again, I'd try and get a better balance with the social life. And did you ever feel that um, people would say that about you? Or, or, I mean, you know, given what politics was like when you were coming through, 80s, 90s, people may have directly said things like that. Well, they didn't say it to me. Uh, and if they had, they'd have only said it once. <laughs> <laughs> so then, when you're, particularly as Home Secretary, really, at that point, you're one of the most powerful people in the country. And you were known, really, as a, as a tough Home Secretary. I'm sure newspapers like The Guardian, I recollect, would have perhaps even called you right-wing. As someone who's spent your whole life in the Labour movement, when you were called right-wing, or basically a, a Tory on things like crime, did that upset you, or did you think, well, actually, there's something quite helpful about that? Well, it annoyed me, but I went home and into the constituency, and people said, you're not doing enough. Uh, and were really encouraging, because... The one thing that drove me, I mean, I, you wouldn't want to be Home Secretary, seriously. You, you, in politics, it's a great job because you're at the centre of things. But I'd only been Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place on the uh, Twin Towers in, in New York and three, three and a half thousand people died. And that transformed what I'd intended to do into an emergency action. So things disrupt you. I was tough about crime because the people I represented were the main victims of crime. It's the, the poorer parts of our community are the ones who experience crime the worst. And that's what drove me. And that's why it was really important to get it right. And, and we halved crime. I mean, I'm quite proud of that. I mean, who would want to encourage crime? Not even a Guardian reader. <laughs> 
But, you know, the, obviously elements of the left have issues. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm only being facetious. No, I know. I, I, st I still do read The Guardian. Um, I, I read others as well, just to see what the other side are saying. Yeah. But did you... I remember at the time you had big discussions, and I know you weren't necessarily at the Home Office for all these discussions, but things about CCTV, ID cards, things like that. New Labour was seen on crime at times. Yeah, I was responsible for the ID thing. Yeah, people saw that as quite liberal. I mean, it, I was always in favour of it, but are you still? Yes. I made a mistake. I should have simply said that we will have... Every British citizen will have a passport and we'll give 16-year-olds a free passport and then from then on they will renew it and you will have a because we over 80 percent of the population have a passport it's the highest density take up of, of passports in the world partly because of our history and that way people could not have accused us of wanting to have information that wasn't already readily available what what amused me a bit was that people were starting to give away enormous amounts of their private data and yet didn't want us to have the equivalent of a clean database uh, which passports would have been eventually. It would have taken time because of people having to renew passports over, over time, but it would have been worth waiting. And then you could issue uh, the equivalent for those who are uh, here as, uh, as residents but non-citizens, and that would have cracked it and then you could have ensured that people were entitled to services and entitled to work and you could have cut out the exploitation and modern slavery which is going to get worse going back to the Rwanda thing it's going to get worse because people who disappear into the ether have no rights and they're they're captured by the organized criminals who take away whatever papers they've managed to hold on to and then you've got modern slavery. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And then, there's obviously, this is a different debate, but voter ID for elections. And obviously, it's something that it looks like disproportionately actually punished the Tory party at these local elections. But Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you've interviewed, <laughs> seems to be on the, the right side. I mean, it's the only time I've heard him <laughs> where I've agreed with him. That they, they, he thinks it's damaging to frail elderly Tories, and we think it's damaging to young people who don't necessarily have the right ID because they've been quite happy for oldies and I fall into this category who have a rail card uh, or a bus pass but young people with a student pass 
don't count. It doesn't count. So it's, it's a weird policy. And uh, they could have been much more generous. All kinds of identity that people now have for different reasons could have counted. I, the, the latest figure I saw was not as large as I thought, but is still worrying. I think about 20, 26,000 people were turned away on the day. And a lot more would have not turned up. And you know what they said when you, you inquired about it? Get a, get a postal vote. Well, postal votes are much more fiddleable than turning up. Yeah. But do you think it's the sort of thing that a new Labour government might have ended up doing? No. No. There was a problem in Northern Ireland, a, a massive historical problem. There were a handful of problems in Tower Hamlets and Birmingham that could have been overcome, but there were other ways of doing it. Because we just got to encourage people to vote to be prepared to vote. Why, why do older people do so well out of governments, particularly Tory, but all governments? Why, why were they protected under the austerity measures from 2010? The triple lock, the bus passes, you name it, television licenses. Why, why were older people protected? Because they vote in very large numbers. And why did young people lose out? Because on the whole, they vote in about half the proportion of the over 65s. And what... How do you think politicians inspire We're going to get round to football eventually. We are going to come round to football. I'm just I'm going to come on to Sheffield Wednesday any minute now. But <laughs> you mentioned earlier, you know, wanting that enthusiasm of Jeremy Corbyn without Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, Tony Blair had it in 1997. What is it about certain politicians that can inspire young people that perhaps others can't? There are other ways other than just charisma. There are ways of people being enthused by the collective, by the policy and the team and not just the individual. I know we, we've moved over many years to a kind of presidential uh, television and now social media base, but actually it is possible to enthuse people about what they believe in and not just the person that leads them. And I think we've got to see a lot more of that. Uh, it was true with Clem Attlee in 45. If you read a book, there's a guy called David Kiniston, uh, spelt with a Y, Kiniston, who wrote a book called Austerity Britain. And it wasn't 2010 to 2023. It was 1945 to 51 when things were really difficult. And Attlee was incredibly popular. and for a time, so was the Labour government, in terms of the things they were doing, the National Health Service, the welfare state, the introduction of uh, proper secondary education, all, all the things. Oh, and four and a half million people discharged from the armed services who got jobs. Four and a half million. I mean, it's remarkable. The housing programme was a fantastic achievement. Uh, um, and again, it was an Aaron Bevan who was in, involved with that. And then they ran out of steam, and then they forgot that you had to be elected. The two things struck me about 1950 and 51. One was that in 1950, Hugh Gateskill, who eventually became leader of the Labour Party and then died before he had the chance of fighting in the election. Um, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer briefly, introduced an additional tax to pay for Britain being involved in the Korean War. Uh, six weeks before an election. 
Well, it's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? <laughs> and the second was the government as a whole uh, didn't say that we were going to do away with rationing, and the Tories said they would. It took them three years, but they promised to do it, and people were sick of rationing. They just had enough of misery, and sometimes you have to take a chance and lift the misery and give people real hope, and the Tories managed to do that against all the odds. So, those are, you, you can't live in the past, and nor should you, but you can damn well learn from it. And what was it for you then that, in, that inspired you to go into politics? Or that made you political? Well, a history teacher, actually. I mean, these I mean, I suppose in those days he would have been described as a communist. <laughs> um, because he did talk to me a lot about the Soviet Union. <laughs> but but he, he was great on history. What he taught me was about the struggle of the past. Tony Benn used to say this all the time. I mean, I, I knew Tony Benn quite well. And when I used to go and hear him, m most of what he, he, he said I knew was sort of fanciful. But the one thing that always struck me was he said that so much of what had been achieved, progressive, radical change, didn't come from the top down. It came from the bottom up. It was about people fighting, arguing, campaigning for it themselves and strengthening the, the backbone of those informal politics like I've been. So the more that the campaign is bottom up, the more you can actually do from the formal politics. And my professor, when I eventually got to university, because I, I went to evening classes and day release over six years to, to get the qualification to get to university, because the school I went to was well, I won't even describe what it was like, but it was do the boys' hall in terms of food and accommodation. It's now, it's now a hotel, actually, just outside Shrewsbury, and I was back there um, three weeks ago for the second to the last match of the season. I knew I'd get round to this. Um, <laughs> and, and here's a lovely story. We were playing, Sheffield Wednesday were playing Shrewsbury, uh, and uh, I got, we got Margaret and my wife Margaret and I got to the hotel and we were explaining to the receptionist how this had been the school and how we, you know, awful it had been. And uh, she said, why are you here? I said, well, you know, we come for the, the game tomorrow. And she said, oh, the team is staying here. So I went down and had a chat with the team and told them about 1966 when Sheffield Wednesday were defeated 3-2, having been 2-0 up. Uh, against Everton in the FA Cup and I'd invited, I was a pupil then obviously, I invited the team across from the training ground at Lillishall in Shropshire um, to the school and, the, and they came across, God bless them, and there was a guy called Jim McCalliog who's still alive and he was built like a brick house and he could head the ball further than I could kick it. <laughs> Anyway, that's got us round to football. <laughs> well, hang on, and, just... And what happened then was we played Derby in the last game of the season. Excellent. And we beat Derby 1-0, but the corollary of that was it meant that Peterborough were in the playoffs, not Derby. Because Derby's just up the road from you, isn't it? It is, yeah. So yeah. We, we were delighted with that. You, you, were delighted, you were delighted to stay in the Premier League as well, weren't you? We were indeed. I think you, the, I think you beat I, Arsenal, didn't you? We did. I think, I think the whole weekend. country's... Yeah. I think the whole country's happy for us. <laughs> broadly. Uh, broadly. 
Well, anyway, we beat Derby, but it meant that Peterborough in the playoffs, and because third, we got 96 points. Forgive me, if, you don't, if you're not interested in football, it gets more interested in a minute. <laughs> so we were playing Peterborough, even though we got 96 points, and they got 77. So we were 19 points ahead of them. And we went to Peterborough, my wife and I went, on the Friday night, last Friday, and God help us, they beat us 4-0. And nobody thought, everybody thought, that's it. You know, Peterborough, God bless them, small club, they've done it. And then last Thursday night, I came across the Pennines from, I was doing a, a speech. Do you call them gigs these days? <laughs> yeah, call them a gig, in, yeah. In Birkenhead. And as I crossed the bridge to go into the ground, Margaret was already there, uh, this enormous cheer erupted and we'd scored, this was 10 minutes in, we'd scored the first goal and suddenly people started to hope. When they scored the second, we were absolutely, God, we might just do it. When we scored the third, we started to believe and when we scored the fourth, there was complete euphoria, 32,000 in the ground, absolutely believing that you could do it. This is a this is, by the way, an analogy for, for politics as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then Peterborough scored. And that meant we were 5-4 down on aggregate. Hold on just a minute. I've got to tell you the, the whole story. We get into additional time. Seven minutes of additional time have gone by. Oh, man. And we're still 5-4 down. And then we score. And it's 5-all. <laughs> and it's extra time. And then Peterborough score. Oh, man. And then we get into the second half of extra time and we score. <laughs> and then it's penalties. And they hit the bar. <laughs> and we win. <laughs> and we go to Webley next Monday. <laughs> and I thought, you know, politics, football, love. All of them, they lift you up, they knock you down. It's a roller coaster and I've been through all of it. <laughs> I mean, Incredible. it must have been a phenomenal... No team in the history of the playoffs has ever, has ever done that. A deficit that big. No, never. In the second leg. And, you know, I can't pretend I, I believed we were going to do it. I just didn't. I went out of hope and just sheer commitment. There's something about politics and, and love, but about football, it's, it's in your DNA. It gets in the blood. You, you become irrational, <laughs> you know. Um, he's football crazy, he's football mad, he's lost a little bit of sense he's had. He's a Scottish uh, ballad. <laughs> and what was it that uh, the, the Liverpool manager once said? Not Oh, Shankly. Shankly. Um, matter of life and death. It, it, yeah, it's, it's more than football, it's a matter of life and death, <laughs> and it is. Uh, and it was. And so there we are, um, completely fanatical, uh, drives everybody else crazy, including this audience, uh, to hear about it. But it is, it does lift you up. And those moments, like last Thursday night, which shall never be repeated, are just something else entirely. And you're obviously relying on either your wife, your friends, your sons, or the audio descriptive commentary that you get in football stadiums now to understand what's going on. Yes, there's an audio described commentary in the ground. Um, you know, with, with modern technology means you, you don't have to sit in a particular seat, which you used to have to. And um, they vary. 
I mean, Nottingham, because uh, when we were in the same division as you, and eventually we'll make it, um, <laughs> it was a great commentary at Nottingham Forest. Excellent. Uh, Peterborough had a great commentary uh, a week last Friday night. Pity that they couldn't actually change what they were saying. I mean, they were quite <laughs> sympathetic, actually, uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, they wouldn't be now. And we have a, an interesting commentary. Um, my, my wife and when my sons are with me, they, they fill in when... Yeah, I don't know, maybe some of you have listened to Talk Sport or particularly Radio 5, where they drift off into commenting oh. or there's things going on on the pitch that they can see but they don't realise that you can't see it <laughs> because you're listening to it. And that's what happens um, at Hillsborough. And so I have to say to Margaret, what's happening, Margaret? Because they've drifted off, you know. And she said, well, we've got it. <laughs> and we've kicked it and they've got it. <laughs> and can you still... Can you still picture a football pitch from your childhood? Yeah, well, my dad took me down uh, when I was four. And in those days, you could sit on the wall behind the, the goal. Unbelievable. And it had a capacity, because of standing, of 70,000. I mean, I, I didn't realise, obviously, when I was four, that 38 years later, something terrible was going to happen at the other end of the ground, uh, which it did. Uh, there were no fences, there was no pens, there was nothing holding anybody in. There was incredible camaraderie. I remember walking down the hill with my dad, and there was a tide of people, literally a tide of people, who knew each other, who were there at every game, who shared the ups and downs. It was a solidarity. And actually, there's a poem uh, that I, I can't recall sufficiently to give you tonight, but it's a takeoff of people coming out of the ground, and you think it's a political rally, and it isn't. It's a football match. <laughs> and that solidarity, that belief that you've got something in common, and that actually was the essence of working-class communities. So, there we are. <laughs> what else do you want to ask me? Well, it's, uh, it's obviously just fascinating because I, I knew, I know some of the people that do the audio descriptive commentary at, at Forest, so I know that it's different to, it has to be different to just radio commentary. But obviously, as you say, it must vary from place to place. And it just, it, it, the experience of being at a football stadium is, is such sensory overload anyway. The smells and the noises and things like that. We could hear the goalkeeper swearing when I was four. <laughs> he didn't now say some things to the fullbacks. We used to call them fullbacks in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Good. But it's. it's and do you Are get we to, finished? Well, no. Do you, get, do you get to many games a season? How many do you get to? Most of them now. I've been to quite a lot of away games. Um, I'm looking forward to getting to the championship and going to more away games because the Radio Sheffield commentary on away games is a terrible one. So we go to away games just to get away from the Sheffield Radio Sheffield commentary. <laughs> and no, it's, it's good, but what Margaret and I have agreed is that we're going to try and stay over a lot more because it's a whole, you know, you, you go down, Margaret drives. Um, I, I said earlier, good job, it's Margaret driving. <laughs> uh, you, you go down and it's a long way back, especially if you've lost. So sometimes it's better to just work out if there's some, somewhere nice to stay and make a weekend of it. And it, it must have been surreal staying at your old school. I mean, was there, was there any sense of it that you could pick up? Was there a smell or a, 
or, 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 or the feel of the brick that was still there? There's bits of it that are the same. Where the pond was, where I fell in and lost my watch. <laughs> um, there was bits of the grounds, which I remember very well. Uh, but they've really um, not torn the heart out of it, but they've modernised it, obviously. I mean, there's, there's bedrooms on the front there. It's called All Brighton Hall. And it's, a, you know, one of these for weddings and spa and what have you. We never had a swimming pool. They've got a swimming pool uh, there now. And there's, there's bedrooms, which I've stayed in in the past, uh, which accommodated eight of us. Um, and th there was one bathroom for about 30 of us. And it was pretty horrible bath, I'll tell you. <laughs> I used to wash the bath out before I got in it. <laughs> I've always been slightly anal in that way, really. Because if you can't see, a colleague over here can't see, I don't know if you, you agree with me, you, you work on touch and you discover things are pretty grot. And I am a bit sort of sensitive to this. And so I think my worst nightmare is filthy, stinking toilets <laughs> outside. I actually do have dreams about toilets <laughs> where you can't use the wash basin. And do, do, have any of you remember when you were at school and you went swimming and you went in the cubicles and there was water slopping about on the yeah, floor horrible. around you? Oh, it's gross. <laughs> well, you know, that's why I don't like camping. <laughs> because if you can't see and you're not sure what it is you're walking in, it is pretty gross, <laughs> honestly. So have you ever been to a festival? No. <laughs> and I've no intention whatsoever of ever going. I think, I think I'd rather have my head drilled. <laughs> I mean, why would you want to be kept awake most of the night have some drunken swine next door singing, or even worse, fornicating. <laughs> and you can't find the toilets, so you have to do it at the back of the tent, and then you discover you've done it through the back of the tent. <laughs> you know, I mean, then you, you get, you come out at the end, and nobody wants to be near you because you haven't changed your clothes for three days. <laughs> Why would you want to do that to anybody? Come on, somebody's been to a festival and enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I love it. I go to Glastonbury every year. I think it's do great. You, do you really? Well, it's every other year, but anyway, as yeah. long as you go, <laughs> he goes, he goes when there's no festival. <laughs> I just love it so much. No, is it every year these days? Well, it's, it's sort of four out of every five. Okay, COVID okay. Was well, we're both right. That's great. Yeah. I like it when we're both right. <laughs> a, good, a good form of statistic. Yeah. But uh, not, no, I mean, for, if it's a lovely sunny three or four days and everybody's cheery and, you know, you... you, you anyway, I won't go into what you might buy there, but um, it's a bit different when it's chucked it down for three days solid and you're walking through mud and it's... Isn't it? Come on. Yeah, I mean, the, if it's muddy, it's a nightmare, but there is a kind of hippie vibe at these things that's quite nice, that feels uniquely at those places where everyone's in it together. And, and... people sing, oh, Matthew Ford. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't sing that. No, no. I was there the year Corbyn was there. Very good. It was a great moment for him. Um, I went to the other stage, but um, it... <laughs> People didn't... There were a lot of people there that weren't into it that was quite interesting, you, even you, at Glastonbury. Do you, do you play an instrument? I can play the piano. 
That's lovely. They taught me something called the mel melodica. I don't know if you come across a melodica. You blow into it and it has keys. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I think I saw them on top of the pops. It's like, it's like a small keyboard yeah. that is wind-driven. Yeah, you blow. You blow yeah, into you blow into it. How you described it. Do you, do you it know the worst bit of being education secretary? I loved being education employment secretary because you could feel things happening and changing and kids and young people were wonderful. But wasn't... The one thing that wasn't wonderful was every primary school I went into thought that I needed to have recorders <laughs> inflicted on me. And they'd say, Mr. Blunkett, we've got the most wonderful occasion for you. We've been practicing, haven't we, children? Yes, miss! <laughs> and then they'd start playing these bloody recorders. And, you know, it is the one time... I've always said I, don't, I didn't lie in politics. It isn't true. It's the one time when I had to lie. I had to say, thank you, children. That was wonderful. <laughs> well, we have a class full of people here. And I'm sure some of them would like to ask Sarah a question. So um, we'll take two or three questions. We can ask for uh, one-sentence questions and, and uh, uh, one-sentence answers. If you indicate clearly, I'll come to you. Uh, yes, the gentleman over there. Excellent. Uh, at first, I have to say, David, thank you, because as a blind person, growing up, I knew I could achieve anything, because the Home Secretary was like me, and that meant the world. And uh, second, I suppose I'd like to ask, if you could change one thing for blind people in our country, what would it be? That's great. I'll just speak to the podcast. And what's your name, sorry? Uh, Ben, thank you so much for coming. So, Ben, uh, from Sheffield, blind, you're a big uh, idol of his. You being Home Secretary showed Ben that he could do anything with his life. And Ben's question is, what one thing would you change for blind people in Britain? God, Ben, I mean, firstly, you made me feel... <laughs> you can't see the fact that I've got a tear in my eye from what you just said, seriously. That is incredible. Because I actually think that all the policies I'm proud of the thing that I've probably made the greatest impact of is actually showing parents, young people, that they can do it. You know, that if I can do it, they can do it. Do different things, but do it. The, the answer is, Ben, I, I don't know. I'd like to, to say, wave a magic wand so that every employer would say, come and show me what you can do, rather than presuming that you can't. That would be one thing. I would also, if you don't mind me saying so, I'd like the technology to be so good that even I could use it. So I, <laughs> I could say that what I wanted it to do and it would do it rather than being bloody awful. So <laughs> that's what I would do. But in the end, it's not really what... This is serious, actually. It's not what government could do or a policy could do. It's what we could do to enable you, Ben, to do what you want to do. I mean, just to whatever it is that's getting in your way to liberate you from it. That's what I'd like to do. And do you feel, as well as employers who, you know, in an ideal world would do something like that, do you find that... Uh, in your interactions with people, that they're sort of clumsy and awkward. I mean, what, what can the rest of us do to make life easier? S simply think, what would I want if I were in that situation? Uh, how, I, how would I want to be approached? Um, would I want to be literally manhandled across a road or asked if I'm actually just waiting for somebody? Um, 
you know, because most people aren't ignorant and most people aren't prejudiced. Most people are just fearful as to how best to make an approach. And that's true of somebody in a wheelchair as it is somebody who can't see or can't hear. And just to, to just take a deep breath and think, if I, were, if I were him or her, what would I like? And you probably want to just be touched on the elbow or just spoken to and say, is there any way I can help? And when I was young, I'd probably have said no and banged into something. <laughs> These days, I would say, yes, thanks very much indeed. And I'm, I'm lucky, I've got a guide dog that's brilliant. And I would just say, um, if I'm in a railway station, I would just say, just, just um, call Bali and he'll follow you. Uh, and he will. Uh, and that makes it really, in, it makes it easy, but it also makes it less clumsy, it makes it more dignified. And that's quite important. You know, it, it doesn't mean you're up yourself. It just means you just want, the, you want to feel comfortable. Uh, uneasy. And, and, and most people would, you know, be very helpful in those circumstances. And you, you currently got Barley. Obviously, Offer was a famous dog of yours. I remember reading about offering uh, your brilliant book on a clear day. You've had numerous. I mean, it, do they have different personalities? Are, are some better behaved than others? Oh, yeah, all of them are different. Why I, I've had seven, and they're all completely different, so it's not fair to say this, but this dog is the best all-rounder, no question about it. And he's seven uh, in two weeks' time. And I've explained to him he's got to work for at least another four years. Uh, <laughs> because the guide dogs for the Blind Association uh, are so far behind in training dogs that, um, you know, I'm, I'd have a massive wait. So, have you got that message, Barney? <laughs> uh, no illness, nothing, just work. My, my, I, I don't know why I had a second dog, because my first guide dog was called Ruby. And Ruby became not just famous, but things were apocryphal about Ruby. I mean, I found out some of the stuff after she'd retired. But she, we get off a, I used to keep um, coins in my pocket because I'd get off a bus and I'd hear a small child cry and I'd know, oh God, he's taking the ice cream. And she's taking the ice cream again. <laughs> sweets out of children's hands. You know, in the town, I was a councillor then, and in the town hall, she could move past a trolley and take a sandwich without pausing. And you'd only know when it started to chomp under the table. When she was something else entirely. I, I went in one of the Sheffield parks and, and I let her off. And guide dogs have improved enormously since then, by the way, in terms of something as basic as recall. If, if your dog won't come back and you can't see, you're in trouble. And, and all those, I mean, this is a long, long time ago, shows how old I am. Um, in those days, they weren't so bothered about recall. They concentrated wholly on what the dog did on the harness. And they didn't like you letting the dog off. Well, a dog needs relaxation. It needs to let off steam. And I let the dog off, I let Ruby off one day. And I said to somebody, I'd, I'd been whistling her and there was no sign. I said, excuse me, have you seen a, a golden Labrador? He said, yeah, she's about 50 yards away. He said, she's seen you. <laughs> she's running in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't good, it wasn't too good. 
anyway, it's been up, you know, it's been fine ever since. We've, we've done really well ever since. Ted, I had a, a big curly coat retriever following Ruby, and Ted was the first a dog in the House of Commons, and he was eight, very old by then, but I'd had a couple of illnesses in my first year, which probably saved me from getting up everybody else's noses. And um, Ted, Ted was just coming to retirement when Nigel Lawson, who died about six weeks ago, uh, delivered his famous 1988 budget, which led to a major recession. But the Tories absolutely loved it because it was all about tax cuts for the better off. And Ted was violently sick <laughs> during the budget speech. <laughs> and some of you will remember, still alive, Dennis Skinner. And Dennis shouted at the top of his voice, who's going to clear this mess up then? <laughs> and nobody was sure whether he meant what Ted had done <laughs> or what Nigel was doing <laughs> at the time. So I've got great things. And, and Ted was the first of my dogs that went, um, when I did... Question Time um, on BBC One. The first time I did it was 1982. And I haven't done it for a bit. They haven't invited me for a bit because, you know, they, they're like um, funny... Oh, I won't say what they're like on it, but... <laughs> anyway, they've invited me back on the 15th of June, so I thought, well, I'll go and see what it's like. And um, if Fiona Bruce doesn't give me a chance to have a word in edgeways, I'll get the dog on her. So she'll be all right. <laughs> So we'll see how we get on. <laughs> we look forward to seeing that. OK, we'll take a couple um, more questions. Uh, yes, the woman there. So yeah. Mary was inspired to be a teacher in 1999 Gosh. under the greatest government the yeah. country's ever seen. And then, uh, what should, uh, if there is a Labour government, do to um, get teachers in? I wrote, I wrote a document uh, which we published at the end of October for Keir Starmer on learning and skills. He wanted, I think, about 10 pages uh, of something on skills, and I wrote 134 pages. In Swedish. What to, what to <laughs> Well, I think some people thought bits of it were, actually. <laughs> Um, really from the cradle to the grave, because you, you can't do schools without you do early years. And you can't do early years unless you do Sure Start again. Uh, and then you can't do skills for life and progression unless you do post-16 well. And so what would I do? Well, I, I mean, I know it's well in the news, but you'd certainly change Ofsted, wouldn't you, from what it is. You've got to feel that you've got the most fantastic teachers that we've ever had. And I do believe that we have. And that they need motivation rather than kicking. Uh, and that they need to be given a bit of confidence to be able to experiment and to be able to take on what will have to be eventually a modernised curriculum and syllabus. But it's got to be done with teachers because they've had a lot of change and people get fed up with change. But we've got to change, we've got to change things. We've got to make teenagers want to continue learning like primary school children want to learn. We've got to somehow inculcate the love of learning. And we can only do it with fantastic teachers who inspire and give them the support necessary to do so. We invented something called the Advanced Skills Teacher. 
uh, which was that you could stay in the classroom and get paid as much as if you went into management. Uh, and that's gradually been eroded because good teachers don't necessarily make good heads. Uh, and well, bad teachers make bad heads, I think. <laughs> but, um, we've, we, we've got to, to get the balance right. And I think Ofsted should be, of course, uh, rigorous in inspecting, but it should be an enabler of spreading best practice, of feeding back what's good about a school and giving schools the evidence that they need to improve rather than giving them a good kicking. And that way, well, I think we would get the motivation. I do have a daughter-in-law uh, who is a teacher and I talk to her a lot about what really turns her off teaching. And it is the bureaucracy, but it's also the, uh, the messages that come down from above, which head teachers then take on board. Because people get the signals, and if they're going to be judged by something, then they jump. And often the signals are bad. But, Matt, if we've got time, perhaps I could just go back to yeah. that wonderful teacher who started when I was the Education Employment Secretary. And yes, you did get uh, what we used to call a, a bonus, maybe a golden handcuff to keep people in. Um, what would you do? What would be the first thing you would do if you, if you wanted to influence a new government? In schools, you mean? Yeah. I think, if I'm right, we lose a third of our teachers in the first five years. I mean, that's terrible for them because they've trained, they've given up time, they've done the incredible first year, which is about preparation, and is by far the most stressful. The only reason I know this, because I did take a PGC a long time ago, so I, I trained actually for teaching post-16, but I learned a lot about pedagogy and everything else. And I, my, my first year in teaching was by far the most stressful. Fancy losing that. You, you lose it, the individuals lose out, but the nation loses out because we've trained all these people and then they, they feel they can't carry on and they go and get another job. They end so, up as Home Secretary. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably game, set and match. What's the, <laughs> what's, what's the final question? <laughs> well, you know what? I was going to ask you. I felt a bit cheeky. When we were talking about festivals, you made a comment and I thought, oh, I wonder. So I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and ask it if it's okay. Cool. Have you ever done drugs? <laughs> Big sip of red wine. Well, I've just done that. <laughs> that is a drug. Um, no, not knowingly, because... You know, somebody might have put some cannabis in a cake I've eaten or something like that. Who knows? If they did, it didn't do me any good. Uh, no, I haven't. I, when I was actually uh, teacher training, uh, we used to... Uh, I graduated at Sheffield, but the nearest uh, place I could get a PGC in adult teaching was at Huddersfield. It's now part of Huddersfield University. And uh, I used to go across with someone who... I've reconnected with and is a very close mate of mine 
And I won't, na I won't name him for obvious reasons, but he and his mates did used to share out the cannabis uh, with, uh, you know, on the, on the silver foil and all the rest of it. And they used to say to me, do you want to have a go? And I honestly used to say to them, look, I've got enough problems not being able to see uh, without being spooked. <laughs> the thing that I remember now, which frightens me most, was he used to drive the car when he'd smoked. What? And how we got across from Huddersfield back to Sheffield, God only knows. I mean, there are times, Ben, when it's a good idea not to be able to see. <laughs> and... and being on the back seat of a car being driven by somebody who's just had a smoke <laughs> is one of them. David, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, firstly, a round of applause for everyone here who works at the Duchess Theatre and at Avalon for making tonight possible. A round of applause for our audience and our fantastic questions from Ben and Mari. Um, but a huge thank you to... Uh, an icon to so many of us, a phenomenal politician, a, a very, very special guest who's given us a wonderful night. Um, not just Barley, uh, but the amazing <laughs> David Blunkett. Well, there you go, David Blunkett, my God. David, not just David Blunkett, of course, uh, his wonderful dog, Barley, who was... Uh, brilliantly behaved and just if you've not been to the Duchess well even if you have been to the Duchess Theatre backstage is a rabbit warren and you have to go up and down about four flights of very tight uh, twirling stairs and um, obviously I was worried when David um, arrived about getting him up and getting him down but his dog Barley is incredible it's absolutely incredible how safe a dog can make uh, you know, what is a, a, a treacherous set of stairs for any of us? Um, just make it so safe for David. That was fantastic. And of course, the question at the end from Ben and um, and David's reaction was was a very emotional moment. And you could see how moved David was. And uh, just, <laughs> oh man, it was just, it was a, it was a real thing to be um, present at, which of course I was. And, and I always get the best seat in the house. And it was, uh, it was a fantastic evening. So thank you to all of you who came. Come to the next show with Philip Hammond uh, to get his take on the state of the Tory party, the Trust Weeks, the Johnson years, the Sunak months, uh, and then a fortnight after that, Margaret Beckett and then Joe Lysett. So some phenomenal guests coming up. You can click on the link to buy your tickets, and I'll see you soon. ta -ra.